This episode features dramatizations and discussions of violence, war, and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Mari looked out onto the water and sighed. The sun was beginning to set on her last day in Singapore, and she already felt nostalgic about her trip. She tried to take in the moment as long as she could, watching the sky turn from flaming orange to dusty purple, even as the other beachgoers began to leave. Before long, it was almost dark, and the place was practically empty. But just as Mari began rolling up her towel to head out herself, she heard something. Someone was wailing down the beach, in pain. Mari looked around, frantic. But she was alone. Everyone had gone. She followed the sound of the cries. In the dark, she could make out a figure lying in the shadows. A man. He was writhing in the water, screaming the same word over and over in a language she couldn't understand. Malay? Mandarin, maybe? She ran to him. Moving closer, she saw that the waves were tinged red. The man was bleeding, screaming in so much agony, he sounded almost inhuman. Mari ran faster. But just as she approached, a massive wave crested onto shore, crashing over the man's broken body. And as the tide rolled back to sea, he was gone. Shaking from adrenaline, Mari searched everywhere for him. Crouching in the shallow water, she scanned the ocean, the sand. But he was nowhere. Then she felt something. It closed around her ankle. Mari instinctively pulled her leg back, eyes searching the dark water. But the thing wouldn't let go. Then she saw it. A pale, mottled hand, skin crusted by barnacles and rot. Another hand reached out of the surf to seize her calf. And then, dozens more. Mari shrieked as they grasped at her flesh, pulling her into the sea. But her screams were drowned in the roar of the waves. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Changi Beach a seemingly idyllic tourist spot with a tragic, blood-soaked history, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. (laughs) 
on the eastern side of Singapore, about 15 minutes from the hustle and bustle of the nearest city, lies a remote stretch of coastline called Changi Beach. The beach itself is a kind of oasis. Gentle turquoise waters lap the shore, and golden sand dunes stretch down as far as the eye can see. It's a place seemingly untouched by time, undeveloped, and quiet. But while the view is postcard perfect, the story of Changi Beach is anything but. After the Japanese takeover of Singapore during the Second World War in 1942, Changi Beach became a place of horrors. It was the site of mass executions. Hundreds of Chinese men were murdered by Japanese soldiers for being suspected communists or allied sympathizers. It is perhaps the darkest and bloodiest chapter of Singapore's history. They call it the Suk Ching. It was afternoon. Jin could tell by the angle the light was shining through the slats of the truck. 3 p.m., he guessed. He'd been gone six hours. Six hours without food, without water, and without a toilet. The truck smelled acrid with urine. A few men on board hadn't been able to hold their bladders. Six hours ago, Jin had been home, a reality that seemed unfathomable now. His father was a teacher at the local high school, and he was often gone in the early mornings, which left Jin, at 19, in charge of his seven-year-old sister, Lai. Jin walked Lai to school every day, and recently she'd gotten in the habit of singing him a made-up song as they walked. That day, it was about Jin's glasses. He'd worn them since he was a kid. They were steel-rimmed, perfect circles, Lai insisted on putting them on while she sang. Jin held her hand the whole way to school, and when he dropped her off, she hugged him with all the strength her little body could muster. He nearly had to pry her off. It was almost as if she knew. Minutes later, when he arrived for his first class at the university, everything changed. Japanese soldiers stormed into buildings, pulling students and professors out of classrooms. They dragged Jin out, too, and took them all to the screening center. There, men were separated and walked past a row of hooded figures, informers. Jin had heard that the informers were communists, or anti-Japanese rebels, who'd been beaten and water-tortured until they agreed to identify their comrades. And though Jin was scared when he was paraded in front of the hooded informers, he knew he had no reason to be. He wasn't a communist or an allied sympathizer. He was just a university freshman, an architecture student. But at the end of the line, an informer had pointed at him. He'd been identified. As what? Jin would never know. They marked his left cheek with ink in the shape of a triangle. He didn't know what it meant. But now, looking at the others in the truck, he had an idea. They all had triangles. On their arms, their faces, their chests. And though Jin had no idea where they were going, he knew they were marked for death. The truck squealed to a stop, sending Jin crashing into the man beside him. Sunlight flooded the dark cabin. Jin shielded his eyes. 
Squinting past the glare in his glasses, he could see the silhouettes of soldiers framed in a square of light. Then he heard something he hadn't expected. Water. No, waves. The Japanese soldiers had taken them to a beach, but not any beach. Chang'e. Jin recognized it immediately. The golden dunes, the blue water. His family had come there on Sunday afternoons to picnic. As a kid, he'd splashed in its waves. He couldn't believe that this was where they had taken them. Soon, Jin and the others were marched by gunpoint down the shore. In the distance, he could see more men. They were lined up in neat rows on the sand, bound together by rope. But as Jin marched closer, his heart dropped into his stomach. There, tied among the other men, was his father, Shen. He was disheveled. His usual pressed collared shirt was streaked with dirt and blood. Suddenly, the emotion Jin had kept contained flooded his entire body and flowed out of his mouth. He wailed to his father, Bah! On hearing Jin's voice, Shen looked around for his son. When he saw him in the line of coming prisoners, he screamed Jin's name. He struggled with his binds, frantic to get to him, but it was no use. Hearing the commotion, a soldier clubbed Shen with the butt of his rifle, sending him to his knees. Jin swallowed a scream. He knew if he called out, Shen would get hit again. As Jin passed Shen, the father and son locked eyes. Jin craned his neck, not wanting to break their gaze. Tears streamed down his face, but soon he was marched onward, and Shen's crumpled form grew smaller down the sand. Once they reached the end of the beach, the soldiers began binding them together with rope. To his left, Jin was tied to another boy. He looked young, younger than Jin. He stood next to him, shaking uncontrollably, whimpering. Jin felt something wet and warm on his leg. The boy had pissed himself. Jin reached out, taking the boy's hand in his own. The commander then ordered the men forward, into the water. With a few paces, they were up to their knees, then their hips. The boy's urine washed away in the sea. On shore, the men arranged themselves in a neat line. It was a horrifying mirror image. The row of armed soldiers on the sand and the row of prisoners in the water. Jin squinted in the sun at the men on shore. No, they weren't men, he realized. They were boys, like him, 18, 19, none older than 23 or 24. On the chest of their uniforms were words stitched into fabric. They were letters he couldn't read, but Jin knew they were their names. Names he'd never know. Jin heard a cascade of rifles cocking. He squeezed the boy's hand tighter. Men screamed as the bullets ripped through their bodies, shredding their clothes and flesh. Jin felt a searing pain on the right side of his face as a bullet ripped through his cheek. The force knocked him off his feet. Then he was falling even further. No, he was being dragged down. As the men to his left and right were shot, 
their bodies pulled on the rope, sending the line of prisoners into the waves. Jin fought to keep his head above water, flailing against his restraints. He took a gasp of air before he was pulled under. As the water closed overhead, Jin looked around. Bullets continued to cut through the surface. Blood billowed from the men's wounded bodies in clouds of red. He kicked and kicked, straining against the rope. But he was tired, and as he was pulled to the bottom by the weight of the other men, he stopped swimming. He let his limbs go slack, and his mind go quiet. And as he watched the sun on the water's surface grow dimmer and dimmer, Jin saw something catch the light. His silver glasses, having been knocked off his face in the struggle, were now caught in the tide. And as he was pulled deeper into the depths of the sea, he heard Lai's morning song echo in the silence of the waves. Immediately after Imperial Japan's takeover of Singapore in World War II, General Yamashita sent out a decree ordering all anti-Japanese elements to be eliminated. The Japanese called the mandate Dai Kensho, or the Great Inspection. But the people of Singapore knew what it truly was. They named it Suk Ching, purification by elimination. All Chinese men in Singapore between the ages of 18 and 50 were rounded up. Anyone identified as a potential threat to Japanese rule was marked with a triangle. Many men were marked for no reason other than they looked suspicious or educated. Men with glasses were a common target. Once these men were marked, they were gathered up and executed en masse. One of the first and most infamous locations of these killing fields was Chang'e Beach. On its shores, dozens of men were put to death. Bullet-ridden corpses were said to float ashore for days after the executions. But today, decades after the waves have washed away its blood-stained sand, Chang'e Beach remains seemingly untouched. Nothing is left of the horrific crimes that occurred there other than a small plaque commemorating the thousands of those executed and the spirits that still haunt it to this day. Coming up, the ghosts of Chang'e Beach make their presence known. Now, back to the story. The death toll of the Suk Ching remains a subject of international debate. Though Japan claims that only 5,000 lives were lost, others report that as many as 50,000 Singaporeans, predominantly Chinese in heritage, were murdered. The scale of those affected in Singapore was massive. Families were left with gaping holes that fathers, brothers, and sons once occupied. And in some cases, mothers and daughters and children. Those who lost loved ones to the killing fields demanded retribution. They received it in the form of formal trials. Seven Imperial Japanese Army officers were tried for the atrocities of the Suk Ching. Five were given life sentences, while two were executed. Another Japanese war criminal was shot dead on the shores of Chang'e Beach, just like dozens of Chinese victims before him. But the people of Singapore felt it wasn't enough. 
they clamored for public hangings of all the officers. A representative of the victims' families issued a statement declaring that the souls of the thousands of Singapore Chinese massacred would not be satisfied until all seven men had been executed. They never got their wish. To this day, the spirits of the murdered victims roam the beaches of Changyi, hungry for a blood debt that can never truly be repaid. Shuji ran as fast as he could, but already the muscles in his legs were burning. He'd been running ever since he left school that day. And though it felt like hours, the closing bell had rung less than 20 minutes ago. That's when it started. It was February 15th, Total Defense Day, as it was known in Singapore, a national holiday commemorating the anniversary of Singapore's fall to Japan in World War II. In school, Shuji's teachers talked to his class about the suffering Singaporeans faced during Japanese occupation. They recounted the battles and food shortages, concentration camps and torture. Though the teachers never got into specifics, every kid knew the gruesome details. Japanese water torture, where a hose was forced down a victim's throat until water seeped out of their eyes and nose, was an especially popular topic. All the secondary students retold that one with horrifying glee. But while the rest of the kids circled around, listening wide-eyed to their macabre stories, Shuji kept to himself on the other side of the blacktop, his head down. Because unlike the other kids, Shuji was Japanese. Shuji hated Total Defense Day. Every year, he begged his mother not to make him go to school, but she always did. It was important, she told Shuji, important to know the country's history, no matter what it was. But she didn't understand. She didn't know Chen. Chen Zhao was the most brutal kid in school, and at 14, he was already nearly six feet tall. Shuji, skinny and a head shorter, didn't stand a chance. Every week, he endured some twisted abuse from Chen. Usually, he liked to steal Shuji's glasses off his face, leaving him nearly blind and helpless. Chen would shove him to the ground and make him beg for them on his knees. Once, when he grew bored of stealing glasses, he took Shuji's inhaler. Collapsed and wheezing, Shuji nearly blacked out before a nurse rushed to his aid. But today would be the worst of Chen's punishments. As the sole Japanese kid in his grade, Shuji expected it, but he never expected what Chen actually had in store. That day in history class, as their teacher was recounting the horrors of the Sukqing massacres, someone tapped Shuji on the shoulder and handed him a note. As he unfolded the paper, Shuji's eyes widened in horror. Inside was a sickening sketch. It had two crudely drawn stick figures one lying on the ground, while the other forced a tube down its circular, O-shaped mouth. Japanese water torture. Scrawled above the awful scene were three words. After last bell. For the rest of class, he couldn't focus on a word of the history lesson over the pounding in his ears. And as soon as the dismissal bell rang, 
Shuji ran for his life. Shuji was lucky. He had a head start. And though he was small, he was a good runner. At least when his asthma didn't flare up. But he didn't count on Chen and his gang having bicycles. After five minutes, Shuji heard the whir of their wheels on the road behind him. He ran faster, making a sharp left due east toward Changi Beach. Shuji figured that the sand would slow down the boys' bikes, but when he stepped onto the beach, he saw Chen and the others already emerging from the tree line. They had found him. Looking around the open expanse of water and sand, Shuji realized there was nowhere to go, and it was too late to hide. Panicked, he ran for the footbridge over the water, but as soon as his feet struck the wood, he realized his mistake. The bridge ended, suspended over the waves. He was trapped. Shuji heard the sounds of bicycles clattering on the wood planks. In the twilight, he could see Chen was waving something above his head, long, snake-like. A tube and a funnel. Shuji's stomach dropped. Chen laughed maniacally. Calling to Shuji, he yelled, Who needs a hose when you have the entire ocean? Shuji turned around and sprinted down the bridge, breathing hard from the running. But terror. He was exhausted, but his fear kept his legs moving. But soon, he skidded to a stop. He'd reached the end of the bridge. The sky was black now, but he could see the dark water roiling below his feet, waves crashing into boulders. He couldn't jump, not into the rocks. But just as he turned around to face Chen, hands seized him by the shoulders and threw him to the ground, knocking his glasses off his face. Two of the boys pinned him down. Shuji yelled, struggling beneath their weight, to no avail. Chen threw down his bicycle and grinned. He handed the funnel and hose to another boy and ordered him to fill it up all the way. He walked toward Shuji, looming over him in the dark. Come on, Chen said. Did Shuji really think he was going to escape today of all days? No, no, no. He had revenge to take. He was going to do to Shuji what Shuji's people had done to his. He was going to repay a debt. Soon, the other boy returned with the funnel, sloshing with water. Shuji struggled harder, flailing and kicking, but the three boys held down his arms and legs. And soon, Chen knelt down with a glint in his eyes. He told Shuji to open up and pinched his nostrils shut. Shuji tried to hold his breath, but after what felt like an eternity, he gasped for air. Chen took the opportunity to shove the tube in his open mouth. Shuji squeezed his eyes shut, feeling the first gush of seawater. But then, it stopped. A sound resonated in the humid night. It was eerie, like a wounded animal. Caught off guard, Chen had moved the funnel to the side, staring wide-eyed toward the water. His jaw dropped open. Following his gaze, the other boys turned around and gasped. There, standing at the edge of the pier, was a man. 
But without his glasses, all Shuji saw was the blurred outline of a hunched, shriveled figure. The thing took a staggering step forward toward the frozen boys. Then it opened the gaping abyss of its mouth. The sound that emanated from its throat was unnatural, distorted and waterlogged. But Shuji could feel the agony. It reverberated through his body, twisting up his gut and stinging his eyes with tears. It hurt like a hundred needles through Shuji's limbs, his chest, his stomach. Its screams sent the frozen boys scrambling to their feet. They sprinted down the bridge, past their bicycles, fleeing on foot. But Shuji, his glasses nowhere in sight, was left behind. He groped for their cool steel frames, shaking, hyperventilating. He could feel the man, the thing's, eyes on him. But without his glasses, Shuji's eyesight was useless in the dark. What direction was the beach? He didn't know which way to go. He was stuck, stuck with this creature. Shuji began to cry. As hot tears rolled down his cheeks, Shuji saw something pierce his periphery. It came into focus in front of his eyes. It was the man's hand. In his nearsighted vision, Shuji could see it clearly now. The pale, mottled flesh, the index finger outstretched. But at what, Shuji didn't know. Beyond its hand was just the darkness of the beach. Now, in his field of vision, Shuji shifted his focus from the thing's hand, up its arm, and to its entire body. What he saw made his blood run cold. The man's clothes were tattered and drenched, his body riddled with holes. And as Shuji stared, the wounds on the man's body began to seep blood. Scarlet bloomed across the fibers of his damp clothes. He dragged a ragged length of rope that was tied around his ankles. The man's right cheek was ripped open, revealing raw sinew exposing his jawbone and cracked teeth. On his left cheek was a dark shape, a triangle like a crude tattoo. Shuji's screams died in his throat. He knelt on the dock, paralyzed and shaking. Without his glasses, he couldn't find his way off the beach. But what he'd just seen had left him glued to the spot. Yet the hunched man kept pointing into the dark, almost as if he were waiting. But for what? Then Shuji realized. He was pointing Shuji's direction home, showing him the way off Cheng Yi. And then, as soon as he appeared, the man was gone. Those who witness the supernatural activity on Chengyi Beach tend to report the same eerie occurrences. Often screams or cries for help are heard emanating from the sea at night. And for those brave souls that stick around long enough, some spirits will reveal themselves. The most common ghostly sightings on Chengyi are reported to be visions of the dead men who had been executed there. But rather than materializing as whole human beings, they often appear riddled with bullets, or in pieces, ghostly manifestations of their bodies after they've been brutalized. Some report sightings of severed heads bobbing on the water's surface, or decapitated bodies walking aimlessly on shore. 
There they wander, looking for the parts of themselves lost to the violence and the depths of the sea. Coming up, a final ghostly tale from Changi Beach and a homecoming. Now back to the story. Among the ghostly occurrences at Changi Beach, perhaps the most chilling reports are not of bullet-ridden bodies wailing along the sand or disembodied heads bobbing in the waves, but rather the visions of the massacre itself. Visitors are said to have heard gunfire down the shore, only to stumble across a ghostly recreation of the tragic scene, an apparition of bound men lined up in the water as Japanese soldiers fire from the sand. The ghostly massacre plays on the shore like a macabre play, recreating the horrifying act, then repeating it again and again. As long as the souls of the fallen men stay trapped on the beach, they're doomed to relive their most tragic moments. And those who stumble in their path are forced to witness the same. Emily decided she hated Singapore. She hated the 17-hour flight from San Francisco to get there. She hated the food. And she hated what the humidity did to her hair. But most of all, she hated that she was there with her entire extended family. It was a nightmare. The only person Emily wasn't furious at was her grandma Lai. She was the whole reason for this godforsaken trip. But still, Emily couldn't get mad at her. Grandma Lai was in her 80s now, but decades before she lived in Singapore, she'd been born there. But as a little girl, Lai had immigrated to the U.S. after losing most of her family in World War II. As the story went, when she was just seven years old, her father and brother left for work and school and never came back. From that day on, Lai had been an orphan. It was a painful history, and not one she liked to delve into. But when Grandma Lai turned 80, she decided she wanted to go home, to Singapore. Soon, Emily's entire family had planned an elaborate multi-month trip. They called it, jokingly, the Grandma Lai Life Tour. And today was one of the tour's sadder stops. They were at Changi Beach the site where Grandma Lai's father and brother had been executed. All day, Emily had watched her grandmother's face carefully, interpreting the expressions in her wrinkled skin. But though Lai was famous in their family for her stiff upper lip, Emily knew she was sad. She could see it in her eyes. But despite this, her entire family treated the day like a neighborhood barbecue, grilling hot dogs and sunbathing. It made Emily want to scream. Even outdoors, she felt the walls closing in. She just needed to get away, just for a while. Emily walked down the shore and looked out at the orange and deep purple sunset. She couldn't deny it was beautiful, but she was in no mood to appreciate the view. Instead, she kept looking straight ahead, trudging through the sand. The sun seemed to be sinking toward the horizon at a rapid rate, plummeting really. Every step she took, the evening seemed to get a shade darker and colder. 
Emily wrapped her arms around herself and shivered. She hadn't packed a sweater. There was no way she thought Singapore would be this chilly in June. But she kept walking forward, bracing herself against the breeze. The sky was a deep, dark shade of blue now. Twilight. And the air was suddenly still. Not a chirp from a bird, or Jin and her cousin's laughter from the water. Emily turned around, looking back to where she came. She saw nothing down the beach. Not Jin, not her cousin, not even the fishermen she passed, who'd cast their lines from the shore. Had she walked that far? Then she froze. A single gunshot echoed along the beach. Emily dropped to her knees, ducking. Her heart raced. As soon as she looked up, she saw something strange. The sand a few paces away were stained red. Moments before, there was nothing there. She looked further into the distance, seeing red blotches trailing the beach. Knees still shaking from the gunshot, Emily got to her feet and went to inspect them. Each one was damp, as if marked by a recent bloodstain. A wounded animal, maybe? She walked forward to look at the next one. Then, she saw it. She saw them. Dozens of men hip-deep in the turquoise water. Standing shoulder to shoulder, they formed a perfect line. Too perfect. As Emily peered closer, she saw that they were bound together with rope. Some of the men were crying, pleading toward the empty shore. But at what? Emily didn't know. In the next moment, a chill rolled down her spine. And then, the unmistakable click of a rifle being cocked. Then, dozens more. The sound cascaded down the beach, sending Emily sprinting behind a nearby boulder. Then, the thunder of gunfire boomed through the atmosphere. As shot after shot rang out, Emily watched in horror as invisible bullets ripped through the bodies of the bound men. They screamed in agony as they were mowed down by gunfire. Emily saw one man go down, then another, then more, sending the whole line of men crashing into the water. Frantic, Emily realized she had to help. Someone had to help. She sprinted down the sand, charging into the blood-tinged water. The men were sinking like stones in the waves. Only a few managed to keep their head above the surface. One man with round, steel-rimmed glasses had been shot through the cheek. But still alive, he kicked and flailed, fighting for his life. Emily ran toward him and tugged on the ropes binding his hands, trying to pull him free. But they were tied too tight, and no matter how hard she lifted, the weight of the dead men pulled them downward. Soon her feet slipped, sending her tumbling into the water. Now she was tangled in the ropes herself, flailing in the bloody sea. Water entered her open throat, entered her chest. Then there was nothing at all. Emily woke up wet and gasping for air, her body half-submerged in low tide. She looked around for the bloody water, the man with the shot cheek, but there was nothing. Just 
something cool and thin in her hand. But before she could look, a bobbing golden beam came toward her. Then many voices. Her family had heard Emily gasping down the beach. They rushed over, flashlight in hand. Relieved, they'd found her. Sobbing, they embraced her damp body and bombarded her with questions. Where had she gone? Did she fall in? Emily could only sputter in response, then cough. Grandma Lai knelt down beside her and cradled Emily's face between her hands. Looking into her eyes, searching, Lai asked her, What happened? What did you see? Emily struggled to speak, to begin to express what she'd witnessed. Instead, she held her hand up to Grandma Lai and opened it. Resting in her palm were glasses, steel-rimmed, perfect circles. Grandma Lai began to sob. Years after the brutal killings of the Sukqing, mass graves were discovered across Singapore. The remains of thousands of individuals executed by the Japanese were then exhumed and relocated to a memorial commemorating the tragic loss. Now, families of the victims of the Sukqing can pay their respects. Some travel from all over the world to see their loved ones put to a proper rest. The site is a painful reminder of the horrors of war, but also a comfort to those who come there. But though the bones of those massacred at Sukqing can be found at the memorial, we're left to wonder where their spirits linger. Some visitors at Changi Beach may know the answer, as they witness the grotesque phantoms drag themselves across the bloody beach. There's no question in their mind, but what about yours? Perhaps the picturesque golden sand and turquoise waters isn't a convincing setting for a brutal mass haunting. Perhaps you don't believe in hell and paradise. Just remember, if you find yourself at Changi Beach, don't stay too long for the brilliant sunset. You never know what horrors the tide might bring in. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Alex Scarland, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>